So I wanted to open up an opportunity for um, questions and um, just a little bit of discussion. The last meditation that we did was different from the others in terms of rather than working with objects, more working with awareness. And um, just opening it up in case there were things that people were um, wanting to share or discuss or ask about. We have thundering silence. With questions that are formulating. Yes, Skipper. I found a place in the last walking meditation in the flush down there. Just be people a place to get near the water. It wasn't that I needed to be still. I didn't know what it was. Instead, it occurred to me that I needed to be part of what was in the water. And I did find some little snails, and they're no longer home. What I'm getting to is a thought that you presented in one of our last meditations in that when it had to do with the walking meditation, that when we're walking, that it is about being uh, right here, right now, within our, uh, I hope I'm saying this right, within our own uh, person. And that sometimes the distractions come in about birds, you know, rabbits and squirrels, and then the mindset that goes to that. And so I'm a little confused and uh, need to hear about more on when the difference between being part of and one with and connected to in order to do the learning and be present. Or I'm walking and then all of a sudden I am, my mind is elsewhere. So if I could have some clarification on that. Good question, Skipper. So the problem is, um, or the question related to, you know, when, when are certain practices useful and when are they not? You know, when is it that we need to actually focus on grounding and having our own experience be like just the frame of our own body where what we're hearing, we're coming back to internal references and when is it that we feel much more softer, diffuse sense of boundaries about inside and outside and feel like we're part of nature. Yeah. So, um, again, it's contextual. And the context is really about a discernment and being able to uh, get some read on what's happening. So when our bodies and our minds are not grounded and our minds are scattered all over the place and every thought that's coming in we're grabbing hold of like some kind of super glue or it's sticking to us like super glue, then what's needed is to ground and to feel our body here in this space and to be um, focus a little bit more on collectedness and on concentration and on, 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 on gathering in. Yeah? It can be that that's the case, that, that, that that can be a supportive tool. When there is either sufficient groundedness to be able to, 
just notice that stuff is arising in a field of awareness, or there's a, a, a very strong access to being able to drop into awareness. Like So for me, I can have all kinds of agitating things going on in my body and mind. And when I go to the Garden of the Gods and I relax in the Garden of the Gods, it's as if I drop into a, an awareness that's suffusing everything. So it's like that's a, an access, an easy access for me. So I don't need to I don't need to have the intermediary step of getting grounded and feeling my body anchored and settled. I can go from disturbances and distraction and 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 um, scatteredness to that place of dropping into awareness. And then in that space of awareness, everything kind of um, coalesces. I feel my body very grounded. I feel um, that the relationship with everything that arises is wholesome and responsive. I'm not reacting to things. So in, in that kind of a situation where there's a really strong and easy access, you don't have to, you don't need to do the steps of feeling your body grounded on the earth first. Now, it, it may have something to do with the fact that I've been meditating for a while and that I have put in like my time. So I've put in lots of hours meditating and feeling grounded, so I know how to do that. And so it might be that for some people these things are when you get enough mm, clock time, then, then it might be that it is more feasible to uh, use these practices that are more pure awareness practices. Um, I don't know that. I don't know that as fact. I'm just, it's, a, it's, a, it's something like a guess. I think with different people and in different parts of our lives and different times of our circumstances, what we need and, and the kind of sequence that we need it is going to be a little bit different. Yeah. But what I do know, which is true for all of us, is, is that we tend to get really strongly identified with whatever is going on. But that's sort of like what we do. We get really identified with it. And we can have really good reasons for being identified with it. It's not like this stuff is without good reason. But the result of being identified with what's going on is, is, is that our relationship is, is colored by wanting to have the things that we want and get rid of the things that we don't want. Because as long as we are identified with what's going on, then we're going to be invested in the stuff being there that supports the idea of ourselves that we want to support, and the stuff not being there that doesn't support the idea that we want to support. Yeah. So anything that gives us leverage on that process of identification is really useful. And whether that's grounding in your body or relaxing into a field of something that's open and spacious or seeing oneself as a part of a web of life. Anything that gives a little bit more leverage about the way in which we grab hold of the stuff that we experience and say, this is me, this is mine, this is who I am, is good. It's useful. Does that answer your question completely? Thank you, helps. Yeah, good. Yes? Um, this is not a change subject, because I made it in the discussion of the awareness um, practice earlier today, but I do have um, four questions about yesterday's Satatana. Um, and um, I'm wondering whether there's any um, 
necessity or significance to practice Satipatthana like in the, in the whole sequence that in in the particular uh, sutta, like meaning from the breath to body to feeling tones to mind objects to dharmas to to, um, to practice in sequence in, in any event or in any stage of the development of it, you know, um, to if one wants to be skillful in this um, in this tools, you know, to establish some kind of uh, what your word platforms of practice. Um, is there is there any significance in that? So that's the specific question. Uh, a more general question is. Um, what kind of strategy or approach that you might suggest or um, in, in a long-term practice uh, for working with uh, Subhatana or applying it? So if I'm understanding correctly, and correct me if I haven't completely got that right, the first question has to do with the systematic way of applying Satipatthana Sutta and how do you do that? And then the second is, is, is that how do you use Satipatthana in a long-term way with life, in a general way, yeah? So, um, I'm, a, I'm a sensate person, I'm not a conceptual one, which means that I tend to meet life by how I, I actually feel it in my body. That's the way my first contact. Which is another, I'm going to digress for a minute and then come back. Another thing which is not often shared from teachers' perspective is, is that different people perceive the world in a different way. So some people are cognitive, and some people are sensate, and some people are feeling, and some people are visual, and some people are auditory. Most of the time when teachers teach, they teach from the way that they have learned. And it's not so often that they teach from the perspective that there's all these other different kinds of ways that people learn. So, as a sensate, you know, when I'm dealing with a something, you know, I tend to go in and then I just feel the immediate impact of what's happening. And so I can get a read, oh, I feel overwhelmed, or my body feels tight, or my heart feels um, agitated, or I feel confused, or there's something here that feels like it's a problem that needs to be sorted out. So what I've learned to do is just to train myself, is then to dial in, okay, so what does it actually feel like in my body? What's happening in my body? And then I have more tones or more texture or more nuances of what's actually going on in my body. So I'm not going through this as, well, what's the Satipatthana and how do I go through this sequentially? It's more like an intuitive response that when I feel this, then I notice it. And then I can pick up, oh, that's unpleasant, this is pleasant. You know? So I'm not doing it in terms of the framing. It's that the framing has sort of become part of my progression. Do you know what I'm saying? It's become more a natural part of my flow rather than a conceptual framework that I'm using to superimpose on top of my inquiry. Yeah. So, okay, pleasant, unpleasant. Now, then I can say, all right, so how am I relating to these pleasant things and how am I relating to these unpleasant things? Well, like most people, when it's pleasant, I tend to lean into it, I want it. And when it's unpleasant, I tend to lean back and I don't want it. 
So when I catch myself engaged in any kind of reaction around wanting and not wanting, or pleasant and unpleasant, then I, then I can bring that into, oh, okay, there's reaction. And then when I notice the reaction, then I can respond to it and just embrace the reaction. So when I bring attention to the leaning in, I can relax. And when I bring attention to the leaning back, I can embrace. And as I relax and embrace, then the experience of not wanting and not wanting my reactivity to that softens. And then it comes back to the immediate experience of, well, what's actually happening in my body? Then I can go through another layer of, okay, so is it hindrances? What's going on here? Can I work with this in terms of where there's suffering? Am I feeling suffering? So when it, when it manifests as, you know, like a desire festival or a rage festival or a confusion festival, then, you know, it's, it's obvious I'm working with hindrances. I can work at it like that. But if it's just a sense of dissatisfaction, then I can pick up the form of the truths and see, oh, it's unsatisfactory, it's suffering. But what is it? Where's, where's the wanting? What is it that I'm not wanting? And then I focus attention there, and right there, right where the wanting and the not wanting is, is where the release is, right there. So, working with the Satipatthana over a while, it becomes like a, um, an intuitive process rather than a conceptual framework that I superimpose on top of experience that just supports my inquiry about how to be with things. Yeah? So that's specific. So when stuff's coming up, this is kind of the way that I work with it. And then in terms of like, well, how do you use the Satipatthana in life? I would say, you know, if that is a framework that's useful for you, those are a set of tools that work really well, then I would, I would make a point of going on retreats where the Satipatthana is the focus of the retreat. And, and during the course of your regular life, I would, I would find a way that is your access in. So you don't copy mine, because I'm, you're not me. You know, your body and mind will configure things differently. But what is your access? And what is the first thing that you're aware of? And how do you use the first thing that you're aware of in order to give you more leverage on how to bring more tools to what's there. So all of us, you know, and the Buddha too. I mean, the Buddha went on retreats too, you know. The Buddha didn't go on retreat because he needed to learn meditation. But he still went on retreat. And so I think it's a good example that, you know, it's useful to carve out some time for retreat, no matter how accomplished any of us are. It's a useful thing. So to have time that is focused, where we put aside the, the having to do and the having to be and the having to respond to everybody in the universe, and we're, we're focusing in on particular uh, tools, we're developing certain muscles of our mind and our heart, opening and learning how to relate to stuff in a particular way. I mean, so if the Buddha was going on retreat, I mean, you could think, certainly, if the Buddha was still going on retreats after he was completely awakened, then there might be some value if I did that too. <laughs> Does that answer your question, Yeah. yeah.
don't have it totally formulated yet. It's okay, it can come out. Um, yeah. Regarding what you were talking about yesterday with the animals. Yes. Um, what was I talking about yesterday with the animals? Um, going to see the animals and just be with them. Yeah. And it, it was poignant because Sean and I had come about uh, two months ago and we went through the animals and we had a similar experience yeah. of sadness. Um, just and sitting with the sadness. Yeah. Um, so I think there's awareness of sadness, but then I, I'm we talked about the response, and I don't want to get into his response, only my response. Um, you know, what do you do? But not the doing. Um, I was more beholding the animals, mm -hmm. and that's what felt significant to me. <laughs> so, I don't know if that's gone too far. You know, I, if I went too far, it just feels right. That's right. You know, just to go and behold and be with them. Yes, well, you know, different people are going to have different responses. You know, I, I heard of a, I can't remember her name. But there was a, a tour in China, and one of the things that they did on this tour was they went and they saw these bears. The bears were in cages. And she had such an incredible, powerful connection with these bears that she did, did, devoted her life, she changed her life, devoted her life to rescuing the bears, to getting them out of these cages, mm -hmm. and created an international organization that was devoted to that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, different people are going to have different results of showing up. But the reason why that was the result was because she was willing to show up and be completely present. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in being completely present, she had a really direct contact with an animal. Mm -hmm. And that had a really strong impact. Mm -hmm. But I think what's really important is, is, is that as much as possible, not just with animals, but in, in, in every situation, that we can show up and be present. You know, with ourselves, with our partners, with our children, with our parents, with somebody on the street, you know. There's a whole gang of street kids that live in Manatee Springs. And, you know, I go and hang out. You know, I want arms around and I make, you know, a point of checking in and saying hello and just showing up and being present, you know. I don't go with an agenda. You know, I'm not going to fix them or sort them out or to tell them to get off the streets, but just to drop in to connect with them as, as people and find out or just be with them what's happening. Mm -hmm. And it might be that, you know, the situation will emerge and I'll ask them some very pointed questions about what they're doing that hasn't happened yet. You know? Yeah. I just had an observation about um, the guided meditation. It's not um, commonly part of my practice because um, I, I normally do uh, Zen practice and it's very structured and we don't do guided meditations, but I found it very powerful, the particular meditation we did this morning of um, being like a mountain and um, your breath is like the wind and um, the, the clouds or the sky is like is like your your thoughts or your mind, and um, 
I just found it very effective at stilling my thoughts and reducing the, the, the level of activity in my brain from doing the practice. So I, found it, I just wanted to say I found it very powerful. Did anyone else have a similar experience? Yes, lots of resonances. Asking if others had a similar experience to that meditation. Yeah, lots of resonance with that. Thank you for sharing. I had a question out of that. Um, <clears throat> and this isn't very well formed. Uh, but as the clouds go by, is there any reason to pick one, for lack of a better word, to be with? Sometimes something can arise that's that's compelling. It's it grabs my attention. So it's not so much I'm picking it as it's picking me, you know. Or it's it's compelling attention, so my attention is focused. Yeah. And then in that space, but you see, the thing is about that space is, is that our relationship with it changes. And so you know, in an ordinary consciousness, we're very very interested in terribly concerned and it's extremely important what's happening with this cloud you know the shape it is and the color it is and whether it's pink or my goodness it's green you know the whole system gets really agitated but in that experience and you know the mind open like the sky you know all of that reactivity is really chilled out but even still, even with it really chilled out, sometimes there's stuff that comes up and you go, whoop, you know. And so it, for me, that movement is also another cloud of the focusing in on this particular something as something particular and distinct and separate and unique and different from all the rest of it. But that movement is in itself another cloud. And in that space, you know, it's really, it's just like, it's so much more spacious than the normally, the ordinary way of engaging with what's going on, that the, the glue factor is much, much less, the sticky factor. And so when there is some sticky, then it becomes so obvious, you know, to, it becomes another thing to observe. I, I like that idea You know, I'm, I'm super sensitive to, usually to sounds, and I find sounds, you know, like car sounds, I find it irritating, you know, just like, you know, there's this kind of body resistance to listening to sounds. But one of the places that I go in the garden of the gods is that I hear sounds, you know, there's, there's I, hear, I hear a freeway, I hear, I hear a big street. But when I drop into that space, it's like the sounds, you know, who's making a problem out of sounds, you know? And it's just so fascinating to me to be able to drop into that and see that in that space sounds have zero impact. And then in another level of concentration and awareness, 
the normal responses is that they're irritating. Yeah. Now, it, you can use that information to beat yourself up, or you can use that information to support. And so, when my system is low and I'm feeling tired and I'm feeling like I don't have a lot of capacity, then I go to a place where there are no sounds. And then I can relax with the sounds. Or I, I go to that place where I have easy access to dropping into the awareness where sounds don't bother me anymore. But I don't superimpose the idea that because I can have access to that at some point, then I should have access to this now, and therefore, and then all the conclusions about what my practice is up to because I don't. That's not helpful. That's just shooting upon ourselves. It's just not helpful. Being, this is very, very, but any words that come to you when um, looking at subtle levels of ego versus discernment, breaking it up. So give me an example of a subtle level of ego. Um, Making a choice to to um, to do something different. That's um, hard because because there was ego involved and 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 trying to um, switch situations so that uh, there's not so much ego involved. But making that choice, I it seemed like the discerning thing to do, but. I don't know whether there was a slight ego thing that... So, you know, as we practice, we get more and more skilled at, at watching the kind of, you know, the stuff that causes suffering. And, you know, for most of us, in fact, I don't know any of us for whom this is not the case, you know, this is a lifetime project, it's not a weekend workshop, you know. And so we get more skilled and discerning, but we still catch ourselves out with places where ego is operating. Yeah. And so what the discernment is needed is, is is that what kind of response is needed when we see that? Because like, you know, I see for myself, there's still places where, you know, early, <coughs> early childhood structures emerge. So that's ego. But it's coming from a, a configuration as a result of patterns or identification or not getting needs met when I needed them to. It's not helpful to say it's ego, therefore it has no validity. It is ego, and in this particular instance, it needs to be related to with care and respect because it has a whole huge energy charge to it. But if it's just dismissed, it doesn't actually serve anything that's useful. So for me, the discernment is not about whether identifying ego, but uh, beginning to identify what's the best way of interacting with it when you do see it. My question was a little bit more, that's helpful, but my question was a little bit more, is there a way to trust that you are being discerning about it, and that it's not actually, you're not being caught in ego that you don't see? Well. 
in this situation, it's really, I think, more in a, a process of, um, uh, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. So where we, we, we make choices, and then we see the results, and then we compare the motivation that was leading us to the results and see how it adds up. Because none of us have perfect sight looking forward. Many of us have much better sight looking back. So we have to, we have to let ourselves make mistakes. We've got to be able to fail. We've got to be able to make a mess of it. And, and pick ourselves up and say, that was a perfect mess. Congratulations. <laughs> that was a spectacular mess. Very colorful. <laughs> you know, what were the ingredients that gave rise to mess? And so then, okay, so those are the ingredients that give rise to mess. And not without, without beating up, but just saying, you know, when I'm exhausted, when I am in under-resourced, when I have a lot of needs, I'm not in the best position for making clear choices. You know, I'm often making choices that are more coming from a place of desperation rather than seeing the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be possibly a ch- an opportunity for mistakes. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. <laughs> have you heard that? I have. What does it mean? <laughs> I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> I, my guess, my best guess, I think this comes from the Zen tradition, but my best guess of what this means is, is that we have all kinds of ideas and concepts about how things are supposed to be. Yeah. So when we have a projection onto somebody about them being a, a completely awake and realized being, yeah, that that projection isn't serving us any good. Yeah. So my best guess about what that means is, is, is that when we're dealing with a projection of who we think somebody is, then what's really good is to let go of our projection. Because being in the presence of an awakened being is different than the concept of somebody who's an awakened being. Actually showing up, being completely present, not having any uh, fixed idea about what that means, is completely different than holding on to an idea that this person is awakened and I know what that means. That's my best guess. We have some Zen people here. What do the Zen people say? I'm not qualified to um, lecture on Lin Chi at all. Um, but yeah, that's a good observation that you made. Um, it's also, I think, has to do with um, sort of relentlessly um, going past all the concepts in your mind that you create, all the ideas you have about the world, and um, cutting through them like a sword. There's almost a martial element to it, maybe. So. Other than that, I don't have much to say about it. So we create this idea that the Buddha is the most exalted, most wonderful, most magnificent, most superlative, most whatever person in the whole universe. You know, that's the idea. So to kill that, I mean, you think, goodness, honestly, (laughs) our first precept, not to kill anybody, why would I kill a Buddha? (laughs) 
It's the concept, it's not the person. It's to deconstruct. It's a fierce encouragement to deconstruct rather than an encouragement to actually kill a person, a living being. You had a question, Skipper? Uh, a brief comment or acknowledgement uh, based on things I've heard here. When I'm meditating, it's, it seems to me it's, it's all in-house. When I'm with another person and yada, 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 this interaction and uh, the different things that go on, it's, it is a good thing or a, a, a pleasant thing when both can separate and then go into their own house and do their own in-house thing. But what I struggle with is when two people are relating and one destroys the other one so that, that second one cannot come back spiritually or in any other way. That's difficult because the one who's been destroyed needs to have something that they didn't have before, that this kind of meditation can um, be a good tool for. This is my experience. So uh, this is a rich question. It's a really rich question, and it's not, it's not, an, it's not a simple question. Yeah. So we can go through things in life which are absolutely devastating completely catastrophic. And so, in my own experience of having gone through things like this, there's two sides to navigate that. There's the one on the side that recognizes that, you know, that there has been some really serious damage that has been done that needs really genuine care and attention to it. And that can be a long-term project depending on the degree of devastation and what got destroyed, or what got hurt, what got damaged. So one is really recognizing the impact and bringing skillfulness to the body, heart, and mind that was impacted. Okay? And there's all kinds of tools in terms of trauma work and working with releasing the residue of that, because the one of the long-standing impacts of trauma is, is that our system freezes into a state of feeling perpetually unsafe. Our nervous system is wired up around the experience that, that, that there's catastrophic danger and it's happening imminently. Okay? Even if nothing is imminently dangerous. Yeah, so our nervous system is constantly signaling you know, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out, watch out, you know, danger, 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 danger. And there are very specific modalities that help work and to, 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 to reset the nervous system so that the nervous system can recover. And as the nervous system recovers, then the body can recover. But the nervous system doesn't recover, then the body is really struggling to recover because the, in, the, the nerves are constantly signaling, you're in life-threatening situation all the time. Yeah. So working with that, you know, as a body-somatic response is, takes skill. 
and trauma work is a particular field, yeah, to do that. Not everybody knows how to do that. And when a, in, in a meditation context, you need to be really careful because you certainly don't want to activate a trauma response. And the worst thing to do if you have activated a trauma response is to focus in on the response. You want to shift your focus to something that's actually nourishing and safe and peaceful and calm. So the meditation instructions, which is to stay still and to stay present with what's arising, are absolutely the worst possible thing you can do if there's a trauma response that's being activated. So people either need to be self-regulatory enough or the teacher needs to be switched on enough where if there are people who are in a space who are dealing with trauma like that, that they can navigate the instructions in a way that it doesn't make it worse. That's one part. The second part is, is that as we are able to touch into this vastness, you know, this open, spacious vastness, we can really get that we're not our physical body. We're not the things that have happened to us. We're not the thoughts that arise in our minds. We're not the stories that we've told ourselves and constructed about everything that's happened. Those are things that we have experienced. That's not our essence. So the second part is, is that when we touch into essence, that's another way of resetting the system. You know, when we know that we're all pervasive awareness and unconditioned love, that nothing in us has ever been broken or will ever be broken. But that's a whole other way of constellating around uh, an experience of profound wholeness. Where it doesn't matter what somebody did or didn't do. We know in ourselves a profound wholeness that's unshakable. And so, accessing that can also be a way of profound healing, where whole huge things can just fall away like, you know, ice melting like a, like a glacier falling into the sea. Because we know fundamentally <coughs> that, the, that the experience of injury was related to a limited idea of who we were and not this open, expanded knowledge of who we really are. Now, what's really important is not to take that and use it to dismiss the other. Yeah? But use it as a way of, of easing out, of opening up, of gently transitioning from that experience of profound injury to something of profound wholeness. Let's stay with it. Let's hear. Have some fresh air.